of all the catastrophic second and third order effects of our abandonment of Afghanistan, my ability to uh, not to host the weekly havoc is, uh, I think it's safe to say, at the very bottom of that list. However, um, all the moving parts there, and um, uh, I'm honored and deeply grateful and very um, sleep-deprived in trying to help some people over there. And as a result, uh, that plus a bunch of other moving parts meant that I couldn't host the show uh, this week. But I don't think anyone is going to be disappointed in the least. Uh, Charlie Faint again stepped in to host, and it's a subject that he had curated for us. And of course, as our booker-in-chief, he had booked a um, a great group of guests. So the subject he picked was veterans and politics, and Charlie cast a wide net wisely um, across the political spectrum, bringing in Adrian Bonenberger, Paul Chabot, and Dan Gade. Um, and I don't know if you can glow in a Facebook Messenger post, but if you can, Charlie was uh, when he uh, – messengered me after the show and said that it had gone great and he really seemed elated with it. So I'm looking forward to listening to this episode. I believe you all probably will be too. So let's take a listen and see how things went. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Weekly Havoc, where we engage in roundtable discussion with the staff, writers, and friends of The Havoc Journal and try to make a little order out of chaos. I'm your host, Charles Faint, sitting in for Christopher Paul Meyer. It's my pleasure to be here today with three personal friends of mine, fellow veterans Adrian Bonenberger, Paul Chabot, and Daniel Gade. Today we're talking about veterans and politics, and it's sure to be an amazing show. As always, the opinions expressed on this show are personal in nature and do not reflect an official position of any person or organization. Today's discussion is about veterans and politics, and we have three guests who are very well suited for this discussion. First, Adrian Bonenberger. Adrian is a writer and communicator, as well as a Yale University graduate and an Army veteran who deployed twice to Afghanistan and is now running for local government in his hometown of Brantford, Connecticut. He is also known for the book Afghan Post and his writings on the military, veterans' issues, and Ukraine have been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Forbes, and Deadspin. He currently serves as a president of the Yale Veterans Association, and his most recent work is The Disappointed Soldier and Other Stories from War. Paul Chabot is a politician, businessman, author, public speaker, former law enforcement officer, and lieutenant commander in the U.S. Naval Reserves. Paul earned a doctorate of education from George Washington University and served in Iraq with the National Level Special Operations Task Force. He was a reserve deputy with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and was also on the force at the University of Southern California. After running unsuccessfully in California's 31st Congressional District, Paul launched Conservative Move, a project that helps conservatives in places like California relocate to red states, particularly Texas. Paul is also the author of Eternal Battle Against Evil, a comprehensive strategy to fight terrorists, drug cartels, pirates, gangs, and organized crime. Finally, Daniel Gade is a 1997 West Point graduate. He branched armor and served in usual assignments right up until he got wounded the second time, which cost him his right leg and a year in the hospital. 
He stayed on active duty and earned an MPA and PhD, then taught at West Point. He retired from the Army in 2017 and accepted a political appointment at the U.S. Department of Labor. In 2019, he ran for U.S. Senate in Virginia. Despite winning more votes in the general election than any other Republican in Virginia history, he lost the election to three-term incumbent Mark Warner. He is currently an adjunct professor at American University and a policy advisor to Virginia's gubernatorial candidate. He's the author of a forthcoming book, Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer, currently available for pre-order. So, ladies and gentlemen, for our audience, if I, if I sound even more enthusiastic about this episode than usual, it's because all of today's guests are also my personal friends. So, Adrian and I are both members of the Yale Veterans Association. Paul and I served together in the task force in Iraq, and Dan and I taught together at West Point for several years. So, gentlemen, friends, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really glad to have all three of you. Happy to be here. So, Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having us. So let's get straight on into today's discussion, guys. It's it's a sensitive topic, very relevant for today's uh, very politically charged world. And we're going to talk at length about veterans in the military today. And I'm very interested in all three of your perspectives. We're all friends. We all have very similar experiences in life, but we have a pretty different political views. And I'm interested to hear from each of you. So I'm going to pose a question to this question to each of you. But Daniel, I think I'd like to start with you with this one. Should veterans even get into politics in the first place? Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, so the reason, I, I think the answer is obviously yes. And the reason that I got into politics when I did was, well, first off, let me back up and say that when I got in, I broke a promise to my wife because I had said for years, I had said, look, I'll accept a political appointment, but I'm not going to run for office. That's crazy talk. I'm not doing it. That's ridiculous. Um, but then I saw when I was a when I was a presidential nominee, I saw that the Senate is completely dysfunctional, that we've got the, the left and the right are both full of idiots and they're they're just they're just butting heads against each other instead of doing this. And and my 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 whole run was premised on the idea, actually my campaign slogan was same oath, new mission, which is, you know, an army officer or a military officer and a and a political figure take the same oath, which is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We've all taken that oath a bunch of times. And so, so the reason I did it, I think, was to continue my service to the Constitution. And I think service to the Constitution is what is the sort of North Star that connects military people and politicians. If they're doing it right, it connects them to that, too. And so for me, the answer is obviously yes. Um, but if you, if you go into the halls of, you know, the social sciences department at West Point, if you want to disperse a room full of social scientists, you can do one of two things. You can throw a hand grenade in there or you can say, hey, veterans should be involved in politics. And then you run out and all everybody's going to be fighting each other and like clawing at each other. Right. Um, but for me, the answer is an obvious yes, because, look, the purpose of politics is to serve our fellow citizens and to serve our unifying ideals. And for me, that's the Constitution. And so and so uh, it was an obvious an obvious yes for me. Daniel, well said. And I saw a lot of head nods going on in the audience. Paul, we're going to ask you next uh, reactions to that or in your own thoughts about whether vets should get into politics at all. Yeah, so it's a great question, and I want to kind of uh, split the hairs on this a little, little bit. First off, when you look, most U.S. presidents uh, have served in the military. Most have been veterans. We're a nation that was founded upon uh, these values, right, that uh, battled uh, for freedom. And so veterans really built this country 
when they were in active service starting well before 1776 to current. I think the challenge of what we see when people are talking about veterans in office, especially of today's times, is how does one who is a military veteran that salutes the flag um, still might have an allegiance to um, active duty where you cannot get involved uh, politically at, at all? And the, the third wheel to this, uh, which is a large component of those that are running, are actually reservists uh, like, like myself. So you have active duty personnel, which cannot run for office. You have reservists, which when, when they're not on uh, AD, t or drill weekend, we can say or do what we want within the framework, and we can run for office at the same time. And then you have veterans who have retired from either active or reserve that are running as well. I will tell you, having run for Congress and state assembly, there are a lot of organizations out there that support support veterans running for office. And you see it on both sides of the aisle. And I also think those candidates tend to be the most successful. And also they're very good at running ground campaigns. The one thing veterans are horrible at when they run for office is asking for money. That's why many of us are not successful. To win an election today, especially a House or Senate race, you need to raise a lot of money. And as veterans, we don't like to do that. It's it's not in our it's not in our cloth to be able to go out there and pick up the phone and doing what they call dialing for dollars. It feels humiliating and it just doesn't feel like who we are. So that to me has been the largest roadblock in seeing uh, many veterans become even more successful. There are certainly a lot of successful veterans right now on both sides of the aisle. uh, But that roadblock of fundraising, I think has been a hindrance. Very interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that, but it makes total sense, Paul. It's we're, we're so in in tune with helping others. It's hard for us to ask for help, not even just for um, for fundraising, but for things like PTSD or marriage counseling or anything like that. I think that's a great point. So, Adrian, over to you. What are your thoughts on that? Should should veterans even get into politics in the first place? Sure, I agree. I think veterans uh, should get into politics. I think veterans are drawn to politics, both because. Uh, they've seen the consequences of politics firsthand. If you're living in a town, uh, it can be things like foreign policy can be pretty abstract to you. Uh, you know, I have friends uh, in my hometown who have never left America, never even traveled to Europe. And so a lot of this stuff is very abstract. You don't see it. You read about it in the newspaper. It doesn't affect you. Uh, things that affect you are, are local, which is why I'm interested in local politics. Uh, but I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that... Um, uh, that that Paul and um, and and Dan were talking about. The the first thing was um, you know fundraising, um, w- w- which Paul mentioned, and and the interesting thing about fundraising in my experience is that when we talk about going into politics, practically speaking, what we mean is going into political parties. And we have to, we're, we're keeping this nonpartisan, which I love, but I also feel that this, this is a nonpartisan critique of our system that you end up the, f- the first choice that you're presented with, unless you happen to be independently wealthy or just like really, really committed and probably single because, or, or have a very understanding wife is, is you have to pick a choice, you know, which party are you going to be a part of, you know, and, and that ends up often being a local choice as well. If you live in a blue state and, and you really want to make a difference, then the fundraising apparatus that's going to be there, that's strongest is going to be a democratic fundraising apparatus. If you live in a city, you know, you want to get, you want to make a play for mayor of New York, you know, chances are you're going to have to be democratic or maybe independent. Um, if you live in a red state, that's going to be the Republican party. So fundraising is 
partisan on a certain basic, realistic, pragmatic level. Um, and, and I don't think that's a good thing, to be frank. I think that's, that's a problem in American politics today. And then the other thing was, you know, I, I think a, a problem that veterans can, can have when they're getting into politics, when they're leaving the military, is they have an idea of politics that is an expression of leadership. They think of themselves that they want to serve the country, but they also realize they have some experience with leadership, whether that's as a team leader or a squad leader or a company commander or a battalion commander. They understand what leadership is, they like it, and they think to themselves, I'm a person of integrity. Uh, I've been able to manage a property book of 10 million or $40 million, or I've cared about my squad mates or my teammates. Uh, and this is something that I can actually do. I can stand for this. And, um, and it's much, it, it, uh, in my experience, politics is actually much less leadership and much more kind of um, compromises and team building and that part of leadership. Um, and, and you, and, and it, also to Paul's point, you know, you really do have to, um, and I, I should have muted my phone as a rookie mistake. Um, you really do have to put your pride, um, you know, in the back seat. But there is, in my experience, great, and everybody's run for office on this call. It sounds like you know there are there are fun opportunities for leadership when you're running. Um, you get to be the person who's there at six or six thirty, you know, with with coffee for all of your volunteers, which is very rewarding. You get to be the person when it's raining who says. The other people who are running right now are not going to be out in the rain with umbrellas. Let's get out there. Let's knock some doors. And fi the, the final point I'll make is it's it's necessary. Our, our country is pulling it, uh, itself apart at the seams and just knocking on doors, whether they're Republican doors or Democrat doors or independent doors, meeting your neighbors and saying, hey, you know, I, uh, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. You don't stand for that. That's fine. You know, vote for the other guy. I, I really don't care, but vote is is what we need to to pull everything together. So Adrian, I want I want to follow up on something you just said and that that dovetails very nicely into our next question, but what you described sounded a lot like to me about being a platoon leader and you were an infantry officer, correct? You were you served as a as an infantry PL. So do you think that your your time as a PL as an officer being in the military as general, do you think that helped make you a better organizer and politician down the road doing those same types of things that you were just describing. Yeah, I would say I was actually telling uh, my son about this um, a couple days ago, and I'm encouraging him to enlist uh, in the military. Uh, don't go straight to college, you know, spend three years mixing it up, get to know what, what life outside, you know, uh, the, the, the suburbs of, of Connecticut is like. And, uh, and I would say that, 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 you know, I was telling him about ranger school and that the number one, you know, most important leadership experience I had, the foundational leadership experience I had was two and a half, largely sleepless, hungry, uncomfortable months, uh, in various leadership and followership positions and learning that, you know, you get there five minutes early or 10 minutes early, uh, in the proper uniform with as much as you can carry and, you know, most things are going to take care of themselves. And if you can't do that, then you have no business uh, leading. And I, I don't mean to change the subject too much here. I, I figure I might, as well, I, I might as well be somebody to throw a topical hand grenade into the group. But like I was online recently and, uh, you know, I saw people, a lot of people were kind of criticizing Seth Moulton and Pete Meyer for, um, you know, for going to the airport. And I, I understand the criticisms of it. I understand sort of like the distraction element. I was not a fan of VIP visits when, when I was in Afghanistan, but you know, 
I, I saw that and my first thought was like, yeah, of course, two vets, you know, bipartisan, Democrat and Republican going to get eyes on something that's going to be taught in history books for a hundred years. Like, like being people that go there and see it, whether that was the right thing to do or not, like that impulse is sorely missing in, in Congress right now and in America writ large, just that impulse to go there and see it and be there. That's the sort of like one of the essences of leadership. Right on. So very well stated, Adrian. Thank you. And Daniel, you went to Ranger School as well before you, uh, after you commissioned as an armor officer. Uh, do you think that your time uh, in Ranger School and as a young leader in the Army uh, helped you be a better uh, politician? Yeah, I think so. I mean, but on the other hand, I feel like there's a real problem in politics where where people people believe that they're veteran service or that their service in the military somehow gives them a shield of righteousness that they can hide behind forever. No matter yes. what the level of their service, no matter what uh, dastardly things they do in office, they're like, well, but I'm a veteran. I should I should, you know, not be subject to any critique, you know. And you see people on the left and the right do this. You see, you know, vote vets do this. You see, you know, Republican politicians do this um, where they say, oh, well, because I served, uh, you can't criticize what I you can't criticize my policy position because I'm, a, you know, I, I used to be in the army or, you know, I used to be, I used to be a veteran. I, I think that's a, a deeply problematic thing that happens in veteran related politics. And I, I hate it, actually. So, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I only have one leg. And actually, Charlie, I don't know if you know this, but about three years ago, I basically stopped wearing my prosthetic ever. I haven't had it on in like three years because it was uncomfortable and my, my mobility was is better without it. And so I'm like, what the hell am I doing this for in the first place? So I just crutch around. I'm a hip level amputee. And so it's really obvious when people see me that I'm a veteran, right? I've got short hair. I've got kind of an intense facial expression. So I can't. I can't get away from people knowing I'm a veteran, but I never ran on that. I never said like, vote for me because I'm a veteran. I said, vote for me because my ideas are better than the other guy. And maybe that was a mistake. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why I'm not a U.S. Senator right now. Cause that's why I lost the election. But, but I was, I'm not willing to use my veteran status as like a shield of invincibility. And I think way too many people are. Yeah, we see that as well. I, I saw that even in grad school when I was in there. Uh, some folks would have an opinion um, on Afghanistan, for example, and they toss it out there based on the soda straw of their own experience. And meanwhile, you're arguing with someone who's studied the region extensively and has been somewhere in the in that country my, other than Bagram Air Base where you spent most of your time at the Burger King. So, yeah, I totally emphasize with that. So, Paul, the question for you, and I think we might have actually talked about this when we were together back in Iraq, uh, but related to what Daniel and Adrian said just a few minutes ago, do you think active duty military members, particularly officers, should vote? Yeah, I think uh, everybody should vote. Uh, active and enlisted um, should vote. Obviously, we know the constraints um, about be, you know being more political, but I think if actually if we don't vote, um, it sends a bad signal. And I think that, you know, who we represent, what we represent, and just the foundation of our country and how important it is and how much work we have done as a society to ensure that our veterans and our active duty can vote overseas, I think we should we should do that. And I also know as of recent, there's been a lot more attention paid to overseas ballots. 
And I think it's also important, you know, even though Afghanistan's winding down and Iraq's winding down, um, just think about the importance for all those veteran or active duty that are out there in these regions that are isolated, just to know that their vote still counts. It's one more reach back from their country to let them know, hey, you're, uh, you matter. Uh, and so please do, you know, participate. So absolutely, I think, I think we do need to continue that. Excellent. Charlie, Charlie, can I tell you a story about that? Yeah, go so, ahead, Daniel. So I'm a company commander at the time. It's, uh, it's fall of 2004, and we're coming up on the uh, Bush versus, who was it, Kerry presidential election. And, and, uh, and I went to my uh, voting assistance officer at the time, who's like this sort of, <laughs> forgive the expression, but like a kind of like a semi-retarded uh, E6, you know? And, uh, and I said, look, here's what I want. Here's what I want. I want 135 ballots you know, or, or whatever the ballot application thing was. And he's like, well, why do you need 135? You're, you know, not that many soldiers are going to vote. And I was like, well, actually, here's what I'm going to do. And I did this. I said, I said, I required my first sergeant and platoon leaders to track this. I said, look, every single soldier in this company is going to fill out a ballot, every single one, period. And then we're going to hand it back to them. We're going to make sure they fill it out. We're going to seal it up. And we're going to hand it back to them. And it's their business, whether they put it in the mailbox or not. But we're not going to have soldiers not voting because they're too lazy to vote. Because here we are at the pointy end of the spear. We're in Ramadi, right? We're, we're like, <laughs> you know, every time we go out, we're in danger of getting killed. And a, and a lot of my guys got killed. So, so we're experiencing the pointy end of politics. So we're not going to not vote because we're too lazy to, to vote. We're going to vote. We're going to not vote. If, if you don't want to vote, you're not going to vote because you're making a deliberate decision not to take that thing the last 10 steps to the, uh, to the drop off. And I, I have no clue what my voting percentage was in my company, but I did know that, um, that I, uh, I was so firm on this because I, I felt like it was part of our civic duty as people who were experiencing the downstream consequences of, of public policy, bad or good, uh, that we were going to, that I wanted my soldiers to have a different kind of experience from me than, than maybe from other kinds of commanders. I really like how you handled that, Daniel. So you, you've got your guys set up to do the right thing. What we think is the right thing. Um, you set the conditions for it. If they choose to vote or not, not forcing it on them, but at least they have all the means to do it. Because I've heard several horror stories over the years about about guys never getting their mail-in ballots or getting stuff sent in too late. So I appreciate what you did for your yeah, guys. Yeah, but that approach was very controversial. I mean, there were other company commanders. There were, uh, you know, the voting assistance officer himself was super pissed because he had to go up to brigade and get extra of the forms and everything. Um, but I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And and you know, if you're out there experiencing public policy at the at the pointy end, it's like. I don't know. It's just so obvious to me, but it was, it was very controversial. It's not a, it's not a, a, a slam dunk. Yeah. Well, most, most uh, creative ideas in the military tend to be controversial. So I, I can see how that was not highly thought of, but, uh, but great technique on that. And Adrian, what are your, what are your thoughts? Should active military members vote in your opinion? Well, in this particular case, my stance toward active duty military members is the same as my stance toward citizens. And I don't see a meaningful difference when it comes to voting specifically. Campaigning is different, but for voting, um, I've, to be 
perfectly honest, I've gone back and forth on this question and I'm, I'm still not really sure I've got a great answer. Where I am right now is that yes, people ought to vote. But in 2016, I mean, I was really cynical about the whole process. Um, it, just sort of for full disclosure, I'm a Democrat. Um, and, you know, the, the entire process of 2016 is just very sort of like awful and kind of like, like and I'm talking about the primaries to the, the election. doesn't matter who anybody voted for. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about my personal experience as a Democrat going through February or January of 2015 through to the election. And, uh, and it's, it felt to me because the, the whole process was so messed up that like, did it really matter if I voted? And, and, and I felt at that moment that it didn't like, it didn't matter what Adrian Bonnenberger thought of like what was going on in the democratic party. Uh, the people who, who had their priorities had figured that out and, and it was going to be Hillary Clinton as, as the nominee. And so I was sort of like, at the end of it, I was like, it, it really doesn't matter if I vote. And, and now here I am, you know, and I ran for, uh, I ran for state rep in 2018. Now I'm running for an even more local office, just essentially city council. And when you get in the system, when you get in the process and you see how laborious it is and you see how many people are there trying to make this thing happen. And, you know, to, to, to Daniel's point, like the, the level of entropy and carelessness, like almost deliberate carelessness. It's like wading through a thick mud swamp to get people to care about things that they complain about and do. And so now where I am is like, yes, it's easy to become cynical about the process. It's easy to become jaded. Republicans can look at the Republican process and say, this is all messed up and it's corrupt. Democrats can look at the democratic process and say, who cares? They've already got it figured out. It's corrupt. It's, you know, it's messed up, whatever, not my problem. But the truth is if we don't vote, then you know, we're left with nothing. So as somebody who has been on the other side of it, you know, mea culpa, uh, I am currently on the, yeah, I think it's really, really important for everybody to vote. Nice. Thanks, Adrian. Paul, did you have a follow-up? Yeah, no. And, and for Adrian and for your listeners, what's kind of neat about running for local office is it's non, it's supposed to be nonpartisan for the most part. You don't run as a D or an R or an I for city council or school board. And so, uh, you know, it does remove a layer of that. And I know we've focused or thought more about presidential Congress, Senate, which is aligned with a party, but like what Adrian's doing, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, and it's, it's important. You know, one thing I was going to mention that um, I've had a realization with is, you know, certainly we want everybody to vote, but should everybody vote? Uh, and the, the, the reason I mentioned that is in this frame is, uh, you know, if we're just handing ballots to everybody and anybody, and we're not talking about just a presidential race. They're going to know, right, who they're going to vote for. We're talking about where there's a number of ballot initiatives. We're just talking about um, propositions, taxes. Um, look, if the voter's not taking the time to educate themselves on those issues and they're only voting based on the, a bumper sticker, like no on this, I think, honestly, that's what's harming our democracy and decisions that are being made around this country. I moved out here from, moved to Texas from California and California, the ballot title, what people see on the ballot is impacts how people vote. Not that they've read the entire context of that, which is not on the ballot for them to read. They've got to read it before. The challenge is what does that ballot title say? And so what's funny is if you look at congressional bills that are brought up, they give these cool names to them, right? And either side of the aisle, but when you look at it and what it 
really means? Is that really what people are intending? For example, they had one in California proposition about safe streets, safe this. Uh, who doesn't want safe streets? But these propositions actually decriminalized crime, let more people. It did the opposite. And when you asked people later on exit polling, did you know what you were voting for? Well, no, I thought I was voting for safe streets. So it all comes down to we certainly want people to participate in the voting process, but we want voters to be educated and, and care about what it is that they're voting on, not just a yard sign or a bumper sticker. Yeah, quick joke. Hey, if nothing's against the law, then you can't be breaking it. True. <laughs> hey, Daniel, uh, back over to you. What should veterans do if they want to get into politics? And you mentioned briefly your your path from the army into politics. So what advice would you give to vets who want to kind of follow your, your path? Yeah. You know, I had, well, first off, don't follow my path. I got beaten like a rented <laughs> mule in my uh, race, lost by 400,000 votes. So um, <laughs> no, but, but what I would say is, is, you know, I had, I had a guy come to me the other day and he said, Hey, Daniel, um, you know, I want to, and this was a young officer. I, I don't remember who it was exactly, but he, he goes, listen, I want to be involved in politics. Someday I want to run for office. How should I, how should I shape my career so that I can run for office someday? I'm like, dude, listen, man, 100% the wrong freaking question, dude. And I go, here's the answer. The answer is you should live a life that you can be proud of. You should be a person of character. You should serve something greater than yourself. And if that ends up in politics, fine. Right. But if that ends up with you being a great army officer or a, a great husband or a great dad or a great school, whatever, then that's fine. But what you should not do, and I think we have way too much of this, like uh, I have to, uh, Adrian, I'm going to hang this guy around your neck, Pete Buttigieg, right? So here's a guy who, who pretty clearly joined the Navy so that he could be a public affairs officer, so that he could go to Afghanistan, and so he could pretend to be a warfighter or whatever, so that he could further his political career. And I, th I just think that's the complete wrong approach. You have to be somebody of character who's serving something greater than yourself for a purpose outside of yourself. And then if that ends up in politics, fine, right? So, um, and, and by the way, and, and I know you're going to reflect this back to me totally, and I I accept it. <laughs> there are certainly people on the right who are doing the exact same thing, 100%. Um, but the whole idea of, of shaping your career so that you can end up in politics, I think, is, is uh, pretty gross. And so what I would say is live a life of character, live a life that you can be proud of. And then if that ends up where you're serving your fellow citizens in local, state, or federal office, that's, that's uh, to be admired. I think living a life of character is a good good advice for anybody, Daniel. Adrian, it looked like you had something that you wanted to, to say on this subject too. So over to you and then we'll go to Paul. Thanks. Yeah. Well, the first thing is I agree with everything Daniel said about that. It, it, it's it's interesting to me how how uh, sort of distracted we've all become from, from that essential idea, something that I think to our grandparents or great grandparents was probably self-evident that like the first and most essential thing that one does in life as an adult, as a woman or as a man is uh, attempt to live up to the standards, attempt to live up to the ideals of your civilization, a civilization in our particular case that has pretty great ideals. That's 
founded on the Enlightenment and humanism and the very loftiest ideas of what people have the right to do and what people, how people should be treated. You know, many other cultures don't feel that way. You know, you don't have the right to be treated with dignity. Um, and, and in our culture, we do, which is great, you know, and, and that should inspire the best type of behavior. We just sort of stopped talking about it at some point. I don't know if it was my parents' generation or, or our generation. Uh, it certainly seems to be the case now that very few people care about that. And and you can't have you can't even have a conversation about politics, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, you know, anarchist, libertarian, whatever, if you're not a person of character because you're just a criminal. You're a criminal waiting, uh, you know, waiting for an opportunity to exploit uh, or opportunistically, you know, cheat or defraud somebody. Uh, and so I, I completely agree with you, Daniel. I appreciate you saying that. And it can't be said enough, unfortunately. You know, be a good person, be a decent person, obey the laws, you know, pay your taxes, you know, do what is right and good. Um, now, I, I had I have to respond to the Buddha Judge thing with a very interesting anecdote that I heard, uh, which is neither here nor there. Uh, I didn't vote for him in the primary. I didn't knock any doors for him. That's That's where we'll leave that. But I was, um, I was a member of the Truman National Security Foundation up until this year. I actually resigned my membership. Um, and uh, he was also a Truman guy. I got a lot of support from Truman. So early on in his campaign, um, a friend of mine who was connected with him said, Adrian, do you want to, you know, the Washington Post is doing some profile on Pete Buttigieg. Uh, how would you like to talk about him in the context of Truman? And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, like. If I've got, you know, I, I think I was on vacation or something. So I had the, the opportunity. Um, they didn't get in touch with me. You know, I was sort of like waiting for a call for a week. I got back from vacation. The very day I get back from vacation, this Washington Post reporter calls me and says, hey, Adrian, I wasn't going to call you, uh, but I'm doing this Pete Buttigieg interview and I got plenty of material. I talked to Pete Buttigieg and he said that you were the reason that he joined the military. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. It so, was the New York Times profile, as far as I can tell. Because he was like, did you ever meet Pete Buttigieg? And I'm racking my mind. I'm like, when I was on mid-tour leave and I was like <laughs> wasted or something? Like, I have no memory. Like, I went to D.C. a couple times with friends, but I don't think I ever met this guy. It must have been the New York Times thing. So you were correct, actually, to hang him around my neck. I... <laughs> was never a huge fan of his, you know, I hope he does well as a transportation secretary. We're all depending on that. So, you know, in the same way that I was, you know, hoping that Trump's transportation secretary did a good job. I want them to do a good job because they're in the hot seat. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think there are, uh, there are, there are people who use the military as a shield of invincibility or a shield of righteousness that I said earlier and they do it on both sides. And by the way, both parties are actively seeking out, you know, veterans of any kind. It doesn't matter whether you're and, and actually I've got a whole riff on this and I'll just give you the short version. But basically the left believes that anybody who served in the military is like victims of the patriarchal system. They're like uh, victims of a, a system that is creating, you know, empires overseas and all that. And so they're and because they're victims, they're they deserve everything. And the right believes anybody who ever looked at a uniform, you know, much less put one on, is a hero. And so they deserve everything. And so the, the two sides agree that veterans deserve everything. And, um, and I, think it's, I think it's deeply destructive to our national psyche. Um, and that's my, my book, which I'm not supposed to plug right now, but WoundingWarriors.com, <laughs> available for pre-order right now. Um, 
<laughs> really um, uh, highlights this, that, that I think the system is, um, it promotes people who are doing this whole thing that we're doing, I think for the wrong reason. And it's, it's really gross. Very nice. Uh, Paul, I don't think we heard from you on this one yet. So what should veterans do if they want to get into politics, in your opinion? Well, they can download my free ebook uh, on Amazon. <laughs> it's called Liars on the Left, Cowards on the Right, uh, Equal Opportunity Offender. Uh, it's based on my congressional races, having worked in the Bush White House, Clinton White House, Schwarzenegger administration, multiple campaigns. Um, look, let me just caveat it in a very direct sense. Running for office is exhausting. Uh, if you've got a family, kids, you're going to be married to the campaign if you're doing it quote unquote right, because you're going to eat, sleep and breathe that campaign. You're literally doing it seven days a week, especially if you're running uh, at a federal or state level in a district for a congressional seat, you know, well over a, ha a half million residents in that region. And so you have to come to it with that mindset that it is tiresome. And if you're single or your kids are older, I think it's fine. But if you have young kids, let me just be direct. Your family is going to suffer. And having looked back, the only reason I was running at that time was I kept telling folks, to me, running for office is like another tour of duty. I'm going to Washington, D.C. Uh, to fight for my country's future and so my children have a great country to live in. That's what kept me going. But I look back on pictures and things that my wife has of things that I missed you know, soccer games and, and dances at schools. And so now that I've come out of this, you know, my advice is you're, you're either a narcissist if you're running for federal state office today, um, or you don't yet know the sacrifices that are going to happen, uh, you know, to you and, and your family. And you've got to make, you know, that decision. I, I've seen so many divorces, separations, kids that get impacted, you know, from this. Uh, when I would fly to DC for fundraisers for my campaign, I would be out there for two to three days. Uh, and I, and I just kept thinking, man, I got to do this all the time if I get elected. Right. And then I'm living in a, in a shoebox out in DC cause I can't afford two homes and you're eating at these late night fundraisers. But here's the other huge part of this that we talked about earlier is even when you get in office, guess what? Your fundraising doesn't end. In fact, it's just beginning. Uh, if you're a Republican, you're going to go over to the NRCC headquarters right across from the Capitol, and you're going to sit there in a cubicle doing what's called dialing for dollars. It's humiliating, but they all do it. And you're not only raising money for yourself, you're running money for the, the, the party, maybe another candidate that's running that you want to help get elected. And then the, the other part of this is uh, you will be attacked regardless, no matter how uh, well you have lived your life. Um, anybody can say anything in America and slander and libel don't really play that well in politics, which means it happens all the time. And how do you challenge it? Well, having been there on the opposite end, being outspent 11 to one watching in my district, 27 negative mailers, half a dozen negative commercials, calling me everything from it, literally calling me a terrorist, right? They put my face next to a terrorist said, I'm going to give guns to terrorists. Well, yeah, I'd like to combat that, right? I'd like to tell the voters that's not true. But guess what? If I haven't raised $150,000 to do a direct mail piece to everybody saying that piece is nonsense, how do you do that? And so this is what bothers me so much about running for office is if you're a good-hearted person, 
just an ordinary, average, middle of the road, not an independently wealthy person, and you're running in a competitive seat, and the other side, because both Democrats and Republicans do it, man, you're getting you're gonna get raked over the coals. But you're also, you don't, if from the military perspective, unless your party is there providing air support and ground support to counter that, you are left on your own. And it's a pretty isolated feeling. Well. Well, it sounds a lot like a, a deployment, like you were saying, Paul. We've all experienced being that that separation and missing those right. those major events back home in the interest of trying to serve something bigger than ourselves. So I, I can definitely relate to that. So, Adrian, you're running for office locally. What is the value of veterans in government? Do you think that there's some t- unique thing that that all of us can provide in politics? What, what do you think? Is there any additional value to being a politician who also has military experience? Yeah, I guess the first thing is this gets back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with, when it came, when it came to um, integrity and uh, and leadership that's based on integrity, leadership that's based on doing things in a certain way and expecting other people to do that those same things in that same way. Um, and you know, there's good leadership and there's bad leadership and you can have encountered nothing but bad leadership and still have some idea in a dispositive way of what good leadership looks like. Um, or you can have had, can have had wonderful leaders, uh, and wonderful mentorship, uh, and leave the military. So I think part of it is really is in, in our culture, especially, uh, that intimate knowledge of what a leader's duty is. And if we're talking about politics, local, state, regional, national level, um, we're still, you know, I think, you know, most of our system is geared, unless you're going into the executive branch, toward representation, representatives. And there's one school of thought that says, you know, a representative ought to, you know, congressional representative, state representative, senator, ought to be representing one's districts or one's uh, area's interests uh, which is a little bit less like leadership. If you're going into some executive position, mayor, governor, uh, president, then you're thinking maybe more a little a little bit more about classic leadership. But the understanding, actually, I, I think the understanding in our country right now of leadership is much more geared toward management. It's not actually like classic leadership, and management comprises many of the same things as leadership, like it's important to do the things that your you know, subordinates or employees or whatever are expecting to do. Um, but there are very different expectations when it comes to vision, um, articulating vision, forward thinking, over the horizon thinking, um, and, and, and also making principled stands. You know, you don't, as a manager, you really just need to make sure the thing that you're inheriting is continuing to work smoothly. So whether you're, you know, in my state, Senator Chris Murphy, or Senator Richard Blumenthal, or Senator John Smith, you know, Electric Boat is still going to be coming to you with campaign contributions saying, you know, we got a giant factory here in Norwich or Groton or wherever it is, I I forget. General Dynamics has a massive factory, you know, Sikorsky, Lockheed Martin, like these people are still there. You're still managing those relationships. It's not like you're not, and I say this as somebody, you know, on the left for the most part, it's not like you're not going to deal with the military industrial complex, which is a big problem to the left. That's not, not going to be dealt with. It's there. Um, so I think, you know, understanding leadership 
is a huge advantage that even a sergeant, even an E5, understands probably better than even you know somebody with a lot of management experience, maybe a CEO of a company. Uh, an E5 who has deployed to combat once or twice to Afghanistan or Iraq and understands the consequences of actions and what leadership is, making, you know, making a plan over here and, and, and everything that you do is connected to that plan and, and moving forward toward it. And just having that attitude uh, because management, you know, I don't know, in my experience, I've seen a lot of people who have a lot of responsibility and authority who manage very, very, you know, large sums of money or large businesses who nevertheless have great difficulty articulating a vision, don't maybe even understand the why behind why they're there. And this is something I think that you do actually get as somebody in the military, or at least you have access to that a lot of folks don't. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess I would be willing to put my flag there and say that is something that veterans um, tend to have more of uh, or more experience with than folks who are non-veterans, especially in our culture and civilization. That makes a lot of sense to me, Adrian. Thank you. Daniel, over to you. What yeah. do you think, what is the value of vets in government? Well, I, I, want, I want to go back to something that Paul said and just kind of um, add on to what he said about, about running for office as a veteran. Yes, of course, there's the, there's the, um, the idea that the, during the time you're running, you're basically on a deployment. And my wife and I talked about that many times and she was okay with it. She said, look, I understand that you'll be, you know, in our home whenever you can and that otherwise you're going to be on the road and all that. But sometimes people ask me, like, what was the biggest thing you learned from running in a statewide race? Um, and my statewide race was a little different because, um, you know, it never became a national race in the sense that nobody thought that I could win, you know, my supporters thought I could win. I thought maybe I could win if my opponent stepped on a rake. Um, but really, it never beca- it never became a nationalized U.S. Senate race in the way that um, the Georgia Senate races became this January. Um, so, so, so people ask me like, "Hey, what was the biggest lesson you learned?" And the biggest lesson I learned transitioning from being, you know, I enlisted in the Army in 1992, retired from the Army in 1990 in, in 2017 as a lieutenant colonel. And that whole time, even if you don't like somebody, you're in a high trust relationship with everybody around you. Like there was a time when I was uh, getting ready to deploy to Iraq where there's a soldier who had done some stuff and it was clear that he didn't like me personally and he was a sergeant. And I I literally put a pistol on the table and I said, look, man, if you're going to kill me in combat, do it today, right now. Just get it over with. Here's a loaded pistol. Put up or shut up. You know, and and he obviously shut up. He decided not to kill me that day, which was good. Um, but but I could trust him after that because I knew that even though he didn't like me, we were going to be pulling in the same direction. We we're going to be like accomplishing our our goals. But what was a real disappointment to me as I entered into politics is you go from this super high trust environment in the military to politics is a zero trust environment. Not just low, but zero trust. Like even your own political consultants have have uh, uh, goals and aspirations which might be orthogonal to yours, right? And so um, that was a real disappointment to me. I, I never worked in a low trust environment. I'd never worked in a zero trust environment. And so 
that was something that was really disappointing to me about, about being in politics is the whole zero trust uh, aspect of it and my own party, right? Like I'm a, I'm a Republican and, and conservative in some ways and pretty libertarian in a lot of ways. My own party was like, nah, you know, we already decided that you can't win, so we're not going to give you any money. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's really is pretty disheartening and, and kind of disgusting. Roger, <clears throat> Roger. Paul, how about you? Value of vets in, in politics and government. Yeah, really important. And Daniel, man, let me tell you, uh, I experienced that, right? It is, it is, there is no worse feeling than running for office, you know, getting, working so hard and being the nominee to fight in that fight and watching the other team, the other party come in and spend money, run air, run TV. And you are literally there alone asking for any kind of backup or support or just to at least show up, right? You literally feel like you're left on the battlefield. You have no air cover and you are just getting mortared every single day emotionally with those attacks. It is demoralizing. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to just relate with you on that for a moment. Um, Yeah. Oh, can I add sure, on to that, sure. Adrian? You'll you'll love this, and you can clip this part out and use it against me later if you want. But you know, in my same race, when the the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee uh, said, "Sorry, cupboards bare, we can't help you," didn't give me a dime. In the same time, they spent fifty million dollars making sure that uh, Mitch McConnell would continue to have his seat. And even if Mitch hadn't campaigned at all, he still would have run by twelve. And they spent 50 million so he could win by 18. And the same thing with Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Lindsey was going to win by 10, whether he campaigned or not. And they spent like $45 million on Lindsey so he could win by 12. And they spent zero on me, you know, I mean, despite, you know, I have a PhD, I've been wounded in combat twice, I've got a cute wife, I'm faithful to her. Like, what is there not to love? But, um, but they had pre-decided that they weren't going to help. And so there was like, even in my own party, there's a kind of a zero trust relationship, which I just, it just curdles my stomach, honestly. Yeah, no, it, it does. And I think that's where you see this separation between, you know, these sort of grassroots, ordinary average Americans wanting to run and then up against the establishment. And so it, they, they pick the winners and losers by who they fund. You cannot win office without money today at that level. You just can't compete. And that's the disheartening part. Um, Charles, to answer your question though about you know veterans in government, uh, so absolutely, and I, I love um, thinking about you know how Israel, um, you know if you're there as a citizen, you're going to serve in the country uh, military for a minimum two years, and then go back out and do what you want. I understand it's different circumstances, but um, I also look at, at at the quality of what the military creates within its men and women. We talk about this issue across this country today about critical race theory, racism, whatever it is. I always go back to, hey, look, look at the military. You know, we don't ask what color you are on your left or right. You know, we got your back. And law enforcement, you know, same here. Uh, if anything, the military shows society how we work so well together. And those lessons that we can take from our military experience into the civilian sector of government to help straighten some of these policies today that are very divisive and not needed I think really is dependent on us, not just because we're quote unquote veterans, but because we've lived that experience. And, 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 and on top of that, we know that the veteran community is the most respected out there, regardless of what side of the aisle we're on. 
And when we can use our microphone to speak to the societal issues we see today and speak truth to that, I think we will be a better off country, you know, for it. Very nice. Adrian, I see you got something else to say. Go ahead, brother. Very briefly. Thank you. I, I, so something that um, Paul mentioned earlier, I just wanted to, firstly, Paul gave some really terrific uh, advice, practical advice uh, about veterans thinking about getting into politics. And I wanted to add on to that with two observations that I've made. The first of which is, and this sort of alludes to uh, also what Daniel was saying and what Paul was just saying about fundraising, figure out wherever you're looking to run, be that at the state level, the local level, uh, regional level or national level, figure out who the deciders are, figure out who the influential people are, which you can gauge through who's throwing the fundraising parties. If you have access to them at a national or state level, you know, regional level, God bless you. Uh, if you don't have access to them, you know, start at the state level and cultivate those relationships because every uh, state rep district, every state Senate district has a group of people or groups of people that number in the maybe a dozen for a town or a couple dozen, a few dozen for you know a, a larger district. And those are the people who will decide whether you get to be the person who runs for your party or not. It's, it's, it's not actually an egalitarian system. You, you, you can bust your butt to try to break that and swim upstream and exert a thousand percent of the energy and effort you would otherwise, by just meeting those people very cleverly, targeting those people, figuring out who they are, and then, you know, making sure that they understand that you're the best person for the job. Um, it shouldn't be that way. But in my experience, it is. Yeah. And, and Adrian, the one thing that your listeners might be intrigued upon is there is a, a one other way here that we haven't talked a lot about, but that is if you are approached. Um, there are political action committees out there or these big players like Adrian was mentioning saying, hey, uh, you know, who was the pilot that landed that plane in, in, in New York? Um, yeah. When you get somebody like that on a national stature, who's in a district that's competitive, you bet the party uh, of who he belongs to is going to approach him. If there's an opening and they need a Republican for a seat to put him in and get behind somebody like that. So, you know, there are veterans out there that are making names for themselves for one reason or another, they could likely be approached, or you can actually go out and look at some of these military political action committees to help you elevate your name. There's a few in DC. Um, there's combat vets for Congress pack, although that's right leaning. I'm sure there's some left leaning ones as well. And if you get them behind you, uh, you know, that, that can open up a lot. And, and also it's really important that one has a professional fundraiser that knows how to go there and get these dollars. And it's not just small dollars in your neighborhood. When you fundraise, you got to fundraise in two different worlds. One is your district by the moms and dads and business owners, but the other is from the big PACs, the political action committees in Washington, D.C. So it, it really requires two wings here to succeed, at least from a federal level. When you're running at state, it's the same thing. In the state, California, Sacramento, you're going to have two, you got to fundraise in your local backyard and at the state level from those associations and PACs as well. So gentlemen, we're coming towards the end of the hour. We got one more question then I want to hear from each of you about the things that you're involved in and, and want to help promote. Paul, we're going to stick for you with you for this question. Who is doing something right politically right now? We, we see a lot of things going on in the world and, and domestically that we think are going poorly. But in your opinion, who is doing something right politically? It could be U.S., could be overseas, Democrat, Republican, whatever. Who's doing something well that you think deserves a shout out on the show? You know, I would um, 
say the uh, it'll be two. It'd be the Republican and the Democrat that flew to Afghanistan. I think, and I, I apologize, I can't recall their names, but look, you know what? They did it uh, together uh, for a single purpose uh, for this audience. You know, they're both military veterans. Um, they weren't going there for notoriety. They were going there because think about all of us and how heartbroken we are seeing our veterans killed over there or just what's happening. But they had the capability to do what many of us wish we could do. And they did it together, um, which I thought was just remarkable. So hats off to those two for, I think, leading the way. I think those, was that representatives Moulton and Meyer? I think might've been those. Yes, that's it. Adrian, I think we'll go to you, we'll go to you next with the same question, because I think you mentioned these guys earlier. Um, same question, who's doing something right? It could be representatives Moulton and Meyer, it could be somebody else. Who's doing something well that you think deserves a shout out? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the former president of Afghanistan, Ghani, you know, he saw that his country was collapsing. He took all the money that he could carry and he left the country. So that's, you know, sorry, that's a little joke right there. That's the exact <laughs> wrong thing to do. That is like literally hey, the you worst. Could, you could have him uh, fundraise and, uh, and support your race out there for city council. The worst politician I've ever seen in my life. Imagine being given a country, basically being given a country and said, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're going to fund everything. It's all funded. And then just, you know, finding yourself and a couple buddies of yours, you know, just carrying suitcases full of cash, flying to Doha. What a terrible, terrible person, mm. terrible leader. Mm. Um, I, I would also say um, Moulton and Meyer, uh, that, was, that was a really great move. And that type of thing is exactly what we need more of. We need more bipartisan gestures from people who just care. And they took so much flack for that. It's like, oh, you know, it was a distraction, whatever. It's a chaotic environment. We saw what happened afterwards. Of course, it's a chaotic environment. If don't we want our Congress people to care about that type of thing? Don't we want them to go down and get eyes on it's You know, we're all former uh, or active military people expect what you inspect. You know, many of the problems of Afghanistan over the last 20 years is Congress not inspecting enough, not saying, hey, where's all this cheddar cheese going? Is it going in the sandwiches or is it getting thrown in the trash? You know, rats were eating it. That's what was happening. Okay. So Daniel, over to you. Two two votes for, for two different politicians, one Democrat, one Republican. Who who do you think is doing something well right now? Uh, so there's this guy who's a 1999 or eight uh, Naval Academy graduate. And I hate to give a shout out to the Navy, Paul. I'm sorry, but... Um, there's this great guy named Jake. We'll take it from Army anytime yeah, we can get totally. it because you guys well, beat us in football last year. Yeah, so, so the you. Navy saved my life in, in combat, and we'll have to talk about that offline. But um, so there's this guy named Jake Harriman, and Jake uh, is the founder of a new group called More Perfect Union. Um, it's, I think it's MPU.org or something like that. But Jake Harriman is his name. And Jake, uh, I don't even know what his personal political um, leanings are, but he's he formed after he got out of he was in um, he's a Marine um, uh, uh, Marsoc guy, and then he got out and formed this nonprofit. But now he's doing something really cool uh, called More Perfect Union. What they're doing is raising money to support um, moderate candidates from whatever party they happen to be in for the United States Senate. And so if it's a, if it's a left leaning district and there's a primary, they support the most moderate left uh, Democrat who's in that, in that side. And if it's a, you know, like if, if it's Georgia right now and there's going to be a, a really bloody primary on the right, they support the most moderate Republican. And the idea is what he's trying to do is form what he calls a fulcrum where 
he's trying to get like five United States senators elected. Um, you, and he's raising a ton of money to do this where, where those people are committed to bipartisanship and they're committed to their ideals, of course, but they're committed to bipartisanship and to working with the other side. And if you can only get a couple of us senators and you're, and they're in the same bucket together and you're, and you're saying to them, look, we are going to preserve what's good about the Senate and about the structure of the Senate. Then you control the entire government. You control appointments. You control spending. You can all of it. And so um, I think it's a new approach. It's something new. And I'm really a big fan of, uh, of Jake Harriman and what he's doing. And he's, he's not necessarily a super political guy in the sense that I don't even like I've had a bunch of conversations with him. I have no idea how like who he voted for in 2020. And I don't care because what he's doing is driving our country towards this, whereas way too many people are driving our country towards this. And I, this is destructive. This is constructive. And that's what Jake's doing. So I'm a huge fan of Jake Harriman. I'll have to check that out, Daniel. Thanks for that lead. Okay, gentlemen, this yeah, you is should the have part. You should have mine. I can hook you up. I can hook you up. Hey, thank you. I'd love to talk with him. Gentlemen, this is the part of the show where we promote the things that you're interested in. And I know vets tend to be humble and don't like talking about themselves or their own interests. But I'm, I'm asking you, gentlemen, please share the things that you're interested in, want to promote, you want to share with our audience. And Adrian, I'd like to start with you. I know you're running for office. I know you got a book out, which I'm very excited to read. So please uh, tell, tell our listeners things that you've got going on that you're interested in. Thanks a lot. Um, so. Um, because I'm running for local office, I'm, I'm not really fundraising. The only fundraising that's happening is is at the at a very local level. Um, you know, my town budget is 120 million, which isn't nothing. Uh, but but I don't. I think I only need to raise a few thousand bucks, and I've got most of that covered already, um, which is really nice. And so that's another sort of plug for uh, vets who are thinking about getting into politics. Hey, check out the local level first. You'll you'll meet some people and you don't have to feel like you're demeaning yourself by begging everybody that you've ever met uh, and many people you haven't for five bucks or 10 bucks. Um, I guess the other thing, uh, you know, the, the first and most important thing that I would want to plug would be, you know, any initiative that you can find that is working to get Afghans that we've worked with out of Afghanistan, Afghans that have been vetted, you know, I'm not talking about picking up every Afghan who, you know, off the street, who wants, who wants to get on a plane. I'm talking about guys who've gotten three or four or five letters of recommendation from different officers in different units across the years, uh, who, who, who really, you know, have a big target on their back because they picked aside us and they need to get their families out. And if they don't, then, you know, something bad's going to happen to them and they're something I mean, something terrible is going to happen to them and their families aren't going to do too well with it either. So if you can look at one of those organizations that's out there like Allied Airlift 21 or No One Left Behind, you know, I think that's, that's, those are places that are doing real, that are trying to do real good right now. And they're also putting the right kind of pressure on Congress and the presidential administration to spend more time talking to the State Department about our vetting procedures uh, it wasn't supposed to go this way, you know, it, the withdrawal was not supposed to look like this at all, but Hey, you know, it, the worst thing that could possibly happen happened. And now that's, you know, now we just have to deal with it. You know, you're, you thought you were setting in an ambush on the enemy. The enemy set in an ambush on you. You could complain about it or you could pick up a, a you know, take off a, 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 and prep a frag grenade, throw it at the enemy and assault through the objective. Um, 
I guess the other thing personally is I do have this new book out, this collection of short fiction called The Disappointed Soldier and Other Stories from War. And I think it's a pretty uh, nonpartisan, honest look at maybe, you know, the truth behind the truth. It's not a nonfiction book. It's talking about more abstract ideas. What were the problems that we had in Afghanistan tactically, but also kind of like personally or civilizationally. Uh, and I, I think, I do think as, as, uh, you know, as, as, as Daniel was saying earlier, like, I think a lot about integrity and, and, you know, the, the, the amount of change that one well-intentioned, sincere person can affect, whether you're charismatic or not. Some people are charismatic, other people aren't charismatic, but just by, by doing the right thing over the course of, you know, three months or six months or nine months or a year or 15 months or 18 months as some deployments were changing the trajectory of a village or the trajectory of, you know, a, a, a life. So the disappointed soldier and other stories from war is available exclusively from a local bookstore. Uh, I know the owners it's not on Amazon. I'm not doing the Amazon thing. I'm trying to stitch together local relationships here. So if you call Breakwater Books in Guilford, Connecticut, you can get a copy of The Disappointed Soldier and Other Stories from War shipped to you, hand-numbered, inscribed, uh, or at least uh, initialed. And uh, <laughs> that's how we're doing it, you know, local. Hey, I love that idea. And I'm definitely going to get a copy. Fortunately, I'm just down the road from you. So maybe I'll come get mine in person and you can take me to lunch. How about that? <laughs> All right. Hey, Paul, over to you. What what would you like to promote? Tell us what you've got going on and, and what my listeners need to know. Uh, great. Thanks. So, uh, you know, one is uh, we have a number of real estate initiatives. One is helping veterans specific. It's called militaryvetmove.com. Uh, we've got a retired uh, Air Force uh, Lieutenant Colonel who's running that, uh, specializing in helping vets um, identify military veteran benefits in various states. Uh, from disability, tax breaks, et cetera, um, across this country. So that's militaryvetmove.com. And the other is, by the time this goes live, um, the site will be up. It's called battleevil.com. Uh, it's a clothing line I just launched. It's a faith-based apparel for warriors, which includes military, police, and patriots. Again, it is faith-based apparel. Uh, we've linked up with an American-made uh, t-shirt company here that uses uh, Texas cotton uh, to, to produce these. So again, that website is battleevil.com. The t-shirt manufacturer that we linked up with there, American Apparel donates a portion of proceeds to various veteran organizations as well. Thanks uh, for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Daniel, over to you. Yeah, so um, I'm working on something really cool and it's been, uh, you know, this project was born when I was in the hospital at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in 2005, and I spent about a year in the hospital after I got uh, blown up, after I got wounded the second time and maimed in combat. And, and what I saw amongst my fellow newly wounded veterans was that many of them bought into the idea that just because they'd been wounded, that they deserved everything. And our society believes that too. And what that's caused is a system that uh, separates veterans from the labor market, that pays people to be sick, and then turns around and wonders why we have so many sick people. And, it, and especially with men, what happens is uh, a man who, with no job is a man who um, quickly loses his sense of identity. And as we know, suicide is a disease of despair. And, and 
lack of identity is directly leading into despair and that leads into our veteran suicide crisis. And so I decided to do something about it, even though it's countercultural, and that is to tell the truth. And the truth is that when you pay veterans to be sick, you get more sick veterans. And what we ought to be doing is paying veterans to be well and to give them systems and structures and procedures to help veterans thrive on their own terms instead of pretending that just because you were in uniform at one point that our country should give you um, everything for the rest of your life. And the book is amazing. Um, General Mattis loved it. Uh, Secretary Nicholson, former Secretary of the VA, loved it. Uh, even even uh, left-leaning uh, guy that, that uh, Charlie and I know named Jack Jacobs, Medal of Honor recipient, retired colonel. Um, he loved it, and the book is called Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. Um, available for pre-order right now on woundingwarriors.com, and it should be, it's also available on Amazon. Um, the ebook is up, being uploaded right now. The audiobook, which I recorded personally, is being uploaded right now, um, and so those should be available in the next week or two. But if you, if you pre-order right now at woundingwarriors.com, you can get uh, a signed copy from me. And for you guys, I'll hell, I'll drive up there and deliver it to you guys who are in Northeast. Uh, Paul, you're on your own. I'll send it to you in the USPS. <laughs> yeah, damn, hey, Daniel, you ought to come up for a football game again, and then we can make the short. We make the short drive over to Adrian, and we'll make Paul fly in. How about that? He's yeah, out in Texas because uh, Texas rich. is putting a right. border around our entire state right now. So, yeah, <laughs> airdrop, would you? Hey, Adrian, Paul, and Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I haven't laughed this hard in a long time. And for, for everybody else, please subscribe. Give us a five-star rating if you're on iTunes. I'll put some show notes and some alibis if we got any after the show in the write-up. I want to say thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Charlie Faint, and for Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks to friends. Thank you, guys, for coming on the show. And we'll make a little more order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. I want to tell a story about Daniel real quick. Oh um, no! And, oh yeah, and we'll and we'll just and we'll decide whether I'm. I'm gonna let Daniel decide whether or not this makes it into the show. Okay. So, so uh, Daniel, as you know, he's missing his entire right leg. He got wounded twice in Iraq, and ultimately it, it cost him his right leg and a number a number of other wounds. He gets over uh, along very well on it. Um, back when when we worked together, he was on his prosthetic. He was explaining to, me, to us earlier that he, he doesn't use it anymore. So um, I took over for Daniel. Daniel was in charge of the uh, officership capstone program, which was the superintendent's course. So it's like every every cadet graduating from West Point took that course. Daniel was in charge of it. Um, Daniel was also known as a disciplinarian. He went to school here at West Point. was was tough on cadets who deserved it. I'm not talking hazy. I'm talking holding people accountable. So I went into his office one day and I didn't notice there was a cadet in there with him and Daniel was sitting behind this desk, this massive old desk in, in one of the oldest buildings at West Point. And this cadet is standing in position of tension in Dan's in front of Daniel's desk, which is not good for anybody. It's, it's a bad day when Daniel makes you come to his office so he can yell at you. And he's 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 fussing at this kid and he's sitting down and he's got his 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 foot. He's got it in his left in his left hand. So his right foot is in his left hand up at his face because his prosthetic can spin that much. And he said, you see this? This is a highly shined shoe cadet. And I walked in and saw that and looked at the cadet's face, who's white as a sheet. 
And then I couldn't, I was about to bust out laughing. I, I couldn't do that in front of Daniel, so I had to turn around and walk out. But Dan, that's, that's what one of the stories I remember about you from when we worked together. Uh, I, I don't believe that story. I think that's nonsense. <laughs> although, although I will say, that I, although I don't remember that specific instance, it's on brand. So that, that, that may have actually happened. I cannot confirm nor deny. Yeah, hey, uh, Daniel, you're actually a legend. I, I heard a similar oh, story, no. um, but, in, but, in, but instead, instead of, you know, showing him uh, your shine, uh, you did a, a, a episode from Get Smart in the 1970s where you turned it into a phone. I'm calling your tack officer right now. Yeah. And you were, you were calling, yeah, calling in for some air support so, at that moment. So one, one thing I wanted to do, if I'd raised enough money in my campaign, I definitely would have done this, is run an ad that that sort of showed me crutching around. And, and the tagline of the ad would have been, it doesn't take two legs to kick ass in Washington. So that, oh, that, I, I, I know it would have gone viral, but I just didn't have enough money to film the dumb thing. So maybe next, next maybe time. next time. <laughs>